1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel, and today I have the honor of being in conversation with Dr. Saibai Varma, author of the book The Occupied Clinic, Militarism and Care in Kashmir, which was published by Duke University Press in October 2020. Congrats, Saiba, on this beautifully written, moving, and very thoughtful book. And thanks for joining me and us on the podcast today.
1: Thanks so much, Sneha. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: And really, the pleasure is all mine. And, uh, you know, I thought we could start the conversation with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist.
1: Sure. Um, So I grew up... um, the child of a, a diplomat, my father's a Indian diplomat, and so we moved around. We um, like lived in a different country, you know, every four years or so, and I grew up kind of with this feeling. Although, of course, I didn't have the language for it at that time, but just this feeling of, you know, being dislocated, not really quite belonging, you know, either in India or either you know in the countries that we lived in, um, and when I went to college, I came to college um, in the US. And it was there that I, you know, first kind of encountered, like intersectional feminism, you know, Kiran Narayan's work, and Mary John, and Kamala Vespacer, and I was just blown away that there was actually a language (laughs) to talk about my own experiences, you know, Um, like other people were also not just feeling sort of what I was feeling this kind of sense of, being out of place or being like multiply sort of dislocated but that there was a theoretical language for it as well um and so that really I would say was what kind of drew me to anthropology um and in my first semester of college actually uh 9-11 happened and it was sort of like overnight you know the world just shifted right and I think it was in many ways, a kind of political awakening for me. I was taking um, like an Introduction to Anthropology seminar and my professor just like threw out our entire syllabus and he was like, we are just going to spend this entire semester thinking about Islam and thinking about the kind of history of relation between Islam and the West. Um, and that was also a really profound kind of moment for me that, that there was a discipline that was like so willing to kind of Um, respond to like these global events of this magnitude um, you know and that we could actually like think about what was happening right in front of us as it was unfolding so um, I think those were the two kind of experiences that really drew me to anthropology I mean I still thought like being an anthropologist was like a fantasy job (laughs) you know it didn't seem like real to me at all Um, right but my teachers, you know, my professors and um, even my parents really like encouraged me to pursue it because I think they knew how, how passionate I was about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you're, the way you're telling the story is also very ethnographic. Um, so perhaps <laughs> they really sensed this ethnographic sensibility in the way you were thinking about these events and connecting them to uh, broader like global processes thinking about your own place in the world in this critical way. And that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And which really makes me even more curious then to ask you, uh, what is the story of this particular book or how did this particular project unfold?
1: Yeah. Um, so I think it, um, so I began kind of really interested in, um, questions of violence sort of writ, writ large, you know, in South Asia and thinking about like the forms of displacements of, that violence produces. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, um, I sort of landed on Kashmir as a, as a place that I wanted to work in just because, you know, everything I was reading about it was like from this very Indian nationalist perspective or, or a Pakistani nationalist perspective, And there was this like lacuna in the middle, which was like, what do Kashmiris themselves think about this Mm -hmm. um, conflict? And um, when I went, you know, as anthropologists do, we're like, so desperate for anyone to talk to us, you know, (laughs) so I just was calling people, finding contacts. um, And I met a couple of psychiatrists who basically told me, you know, I asked them, what do you think is the most pressing issue happening right now? And they were like, there is this epidemic of trauma there is this mental health crisis you know 60% of people here are experiencing psychiatric distress and lost their entire lifetimes this is what you should work on mm-hmm. and so I thought okay you know can I shadow you basically for like two years and they were like yeah it's fine it's <laughs> so great wow, um, yeah. and that's kind of you know right so many projects I think happened by accident like that so totally. that's yeah. kind of how it um, emerged and I would say like I, you know, for my dissertation and everything, it was a pretty conventional medical anthropology project. You mm-hmm. know, it was situated in the clinic. It was um, in or rather in several clinics, like uh, the, the kind of only government psychiatric hospital um, in the region in a substance abuse clinic. And with these various NGOs who were doing um, sort of psychosocial work, um, like counseling and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and, you know, I was trying to understand, like, what forms of knowledge are being produced in these settings? Um, how are people reacting to this? these very new forms of care in many cases? Uh, how does that, you know, maybe rub up against their own ideas of care, um, etc.? And I think it was fine, you know, as a, <laughs> as a dissertation project. But when, when I was done with it, I just felt so deeply kind of dissatisfied with my dissertation which i know is a common feeling (laughs)
0: yeah i was just (laughs) gonna say (laughs)
1: um but in my case i i felt like there was something that i had really left sort of incomplete Mm -hmm. like there was something unassimilated and Mm -hmm. i think that that was basically just a real reckoning with violence with the scale of violence and with the ways in which violence really permeated like the everyday people's like psychic lives that, you know, these, th- these most intimate kind of social relationships and even my own um, identity and my work as a researcher and like what it meant to do field work. And I think, part, you know, and none of this I really confronted in my dissertation because I really didn't know how to confront it. Like mm-hmm. part of it, I think was my own fear and not knowing how to write about that immensity you know, that that immense kind of experience of conflict without right. falling into this trap of, like, you know, what Val Daniel once called, like, a pornography of suffering,
0: mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I didn't right. know how to... Uh, how do I write about this trauma without holding myself up as an ethnographer, as this kind of, you know, witness extraordinaire or something, because I was very uncomfortable with the idea that I could somehow be a moral witness. You know, I was like, what... <laughs> what standing do I have, right, to okay. to be arbitrating here? Um, and also just like contending with my own complicity as an Indian citizen, mm-hmm. sort of seeing, really being confronted with the forms of violence that the Indian state had perpetrated um, in this region. I didn't know how to put all of that together, or, or at least I wasn't able to put put it all together in a dissertation, but for the book, it was something that, i was really um i was really determined to do i was really like you know determined to like confront all of that um <laughs> and it it meant like starting to write from scratch it meant undoing a lot of what i had done and or what i thought i knew it meant um unlearning you know it meant like shedding all these layers of um of things I had been taught both about Indian history, but also about like what it means to do anthropology, what it means to be present in these kinds of spaces. Um yeah. of violence. violence.
0: Yeah. You know, as, um, I mean, I can't speak to the immensity of violence, of course, in my own project because it's a very different one, but the way you're talking about uh, this transformation of the dissertation into the book, a lot of it, I guess, resonated Uh, because uh, I think everybody does feel a sense of dissatisfaction with the dissertation, but precisely why Uh, I think you articulated it so well. And um, I can't wait to think about some of the things that you've said while uh, trying to draft like a book prospectus and stuff like that. So really um, thanks for that. And uh, yeah, let's, let's get to the book itself. And um, so the book starts out with uh, such a compelling argument again uh, around militarism and care. That is, um, the current crisis in Kashmir is whats is an outcome of what you call uh, the over-investments in care, rather than long-standing neglect by the state. Uh, instinctively, of course, um, this resonates with anyone, I guess, remotely familiar with the, the toxicity of paternalistic protection, the saying that this is for your own good. Uh, <laughs> but beyond that, you argue that loving Kashmir, in quotes, is key to understanding how Indian nationalism attains perfectibility. Can you speak a little bit about these longstanding libidinal logics of love?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, first, I mean, I think I should just say that, you know, it's so difficult to capture the sort of just the affective intensity, right, of this relationship. (laughs) I think for, I mean, I think South Asians get it, like because we've grown up with this, but Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the with the region um, just the ferocity right of this this kind of like obsessive love and desire
0: yeah
1: it's it's really I think hard for people to wrap their heads around I was thinking like you know an analogy would be sort of like the American flag or something right as this like Mm -hmm. sacred symbol that um, connotes like right all of this like sort of patriotic energy um and like kneeling in front of it for example is is this like sacrilegious act um mm-hmm. but you know even in um in the US you have like progressive or li- liberal people who who are okay with that right, they, right. um they understand like the, that impulse and where it comes from whereas in India this love this obsession for Kashmir really permeates like all Parts of a political spectrum, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. like just so pervasive. There is no space cool. to sort of critique um, Kashmir's place in the in the kind of Indian um, nation state, as well as this kind of imaginary. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of like this idea of over investments, I think what was interesting. I think what is interesting about Kashmir is that it's a bo- it's you know often figured as this borderland. Um, mm-hmm. But whereas other borderlands, like we could think of the northeastern states of India, for example, that usually we think of as spaces of neglect or spaces of abandonment. this mm-hmm. is really exceptional, right? In the sense that it's, it's about over-investments. It's about economic over-investments. It's about mm-hmm. humanitarian over-investments. But it's also about military um, right. over-investments. And... Um, so, you know, this all kind of has been mixed together, I think, um, in a really sort of shrewd combination, I would say. Um, and one that's not always visible to ordinary Indians, right? So it's very common. I'm sure, you, you know, you've heard your parents say this as well. Yeah. Uh, but my parents, right, like people, they'll say like, oh, you know, we've showered them with them. Yeah quote yeah. unquote, with so much and they're still so ungrateful, right? That yeah. these yeah. demands for political self-determination in a sense are not just illegible, but there's something kind of affectively wrong, right? There's mm-hmm. something kind of morally offensive about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the fact, the ways in which the Indian state has sort of mobilized love and violence together is remains like largely, I think, invisible um, mm-hmm. to Indian publics. Um, so I you know in kind of thinking about this um, these relations of love and care and the way then of course they um, they become transformed more more recently in the ways in which the Indian state has is trying to sort of reconfigure itself as a therapeutic actor in the region as a you know talking about heal the healing touch right mm-hmm. talking about like heart warfare, all of these kinds of things um, <laughs> become ways of I would say not just disguising um, Mm -hmm. the violence that has always accompanied them, but even of producing new forms of of harm, right? Because under that guise of care, you can actually then start doing more things to people. Um, Mm -hmm. You can kind of extend the military apparatus so that civilians become involved, for example, through counterinsurgency and other practices. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the, it's, Tricky, precisely, as you said, it produces new, new forms of harm rather than just disguising. And I think that's that's really well put. Um, but in, in chapter one, you sort of peel the layers of a term that seems to be ubiquitous in Kashmir, um, that is Kamzori. Mm-hmm. And uh, you say that it's used to mean both a physical and psychological condition. It is at once individual and collective. And it's also a moral category linked to histories of colonialism, and the contemporary ecology of corruption in the region. Hmm. And you argue against a simplistic reading of Kamzori as a cultural signifier, and instead you show uh, the existential, social, and political stakes of this really loaded term, and you take seriously the semantic complexity of Kamzori, right? Um, I would love it if you could speak a little bit to what doing this uh, enabled you to learn and what it teaches us about militarism and medicine and the many connections between them.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, was like one of those, you know, ethnographic surprises, um, that I found because, um, you know, before I started doing field work and also while I was in the field, you know, you're just like basically devouring everything you can right, on your research topic. Um, and everything I read was basically about trauma and PTSD. There was just Mm -hmm. this kind of profusion of, Literature on those subjects. And so when I began doing field work, I was imagining, you know, that these clinics would be sort of full of people with PTSD symptoms and uh, you know, that it would be ubiquitous everywhere. Um, and I Mm -hmm. soon realized that actually there wasn't that much PTSD. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was a real shock and surprise to me.
0: Um,
1: and of course it wasn't because there was a lack of trauma or a Mm -hmm. lack of suffering. Um, but as, you know, psychiatrists ended up sort of explaining to me, it was actually because the levels of kind of active conflict had, had decreased. And so incidence of PTSD had increased. Meanwhile, other forms of psychiatric distress, anxiety and like major depressive disorder and all of those things were on the rise. Um, you know, because PTSD is something that is you have to have like a very specific kind of external event that triggers it. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really kind of map onto the kind of violence that was happening anymore in Kashmir. It was much more, you know, the violence had become much more dispersed. It was the slower kind of erosion of everyday life, the sense of uncertainty, the sense of uh, lack of like futurity, those kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. And so once I realized, okay, PTSD is not the object, you know, which again, this is like a pretty common experience, I think. <laughs> A lot of anthropologists have, like I'm thinking about Lawrence Cohen, you know, in No Aging in India, in the beginning, yeah. he talks about he's looking for, right. he's looking for senility and he's like chasing down old ladies down alleyways. I think he he that realizes <laughs> like, that's an insane thing to do, you know. Um, so it's kind of like a similar experience, you know, chasing PTSD and realizing, um, okay, hold on, that's not actually the thing. Yeah. Um, And so then I actually started paying attention to what people were bringing to the clinic, like what complaints. And that's when I sort of landed on kamsori and finding um, that kamsori was actually the ubiquitous thing that almost every patient uh, who was coming to seek care was, you know, expressing um, Mm -hmm. that they were this feeling of kind of chronic fatigue, this uh, like physical debility. But it was also more than that, you know, it was also a feeling of, um, kind of social debility or moral debility, um, feeling like you were really not the same as you had been earlier, mm-hmm. that there was, um, just like eroding sense of, of, of yourself, of your, like just your presence as a human being, you know, and it's like spiritual, moral, um, affective, all of those dimensions, mm-hmm. um, and I was really interested that, you know, even when people were getting treated for Kamzuri or for other psychiatric, like, just forms of distress, but they would kind of insist on that Kamzuri was still there. It wasn't something yeah. they were, like, willing to let go. Um, and that also really fascinated me, is that why are people kind of insisting on mm-hmm. Um, And I don't know if you've read... Um, this piece by Fanon, it's uh, where he's talking about the North African syndrome. And he mm-hmm. sort of describes how, like, from the perspective of these French colonial doctors, um, that, like, he says, like, the North African comes enveloped in vagueness. right? right like, their right. bodies are just illegible um, mm-hmm. to the doctors. And their bodies are read as kind of ineloquent, uh, mm-hmm. when, in fact, right, that silence, um, that vagueness is is saying so much about the kinds oh, yeah. of conditions that people are living in. Um, yeah. So as you pointed out, Sneha, like I was really trying to draw attention to the materiality of Kamsori, mm-hmm. um and the ways in which it's kind of calling for this attention, right? To well-being as this kind of relational, moral, political, and spiritual um, process. And and also historical, I realize that Kamzuri itself is kind of a colonial wound. That's what mm-hmm. people are kind of theorizing it as. Um, and through drawing attention to it, I think they're calling for a kind of decolonial healing, right? Like recognizing that these wounds are ongoing, they're unfolding, they're not just going to get fixed. Um, mm-hmm. And they're not easily locatable, right? They're like very much in the in the social Um mm-hmm. So th- those are kind of some of the things I was trying to um, draw attention to through Kamsuri.
0: Yeah. And, you know, uh, on that note, the other term that I guess one often associates with Kashmir is the term disturbance, right? And in chapter two, you address rather directly this idea of disturbance. And um, you f- first you show how in mainstream public culture, Kashmir has become sort of synonymous as a disturbed place. And uh, this this invocation of Kashmir as being disturbed uh, justifies and reproduces military repression in many ways. Um, however, as with all the quietly brilliant moves you make in this book, what I found really compelling is how you uh, argue that disturbance manifests in the space of the clinic and how doctors are not co-opted by state logics, even while being embedded in them. Could you walk us through how this idea of disturbance shapes interactions at the clinic and how it presents opportunities for the disruption of militarism itself?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, so of course, this um, this idea of disturbance, um, I mean, I'm thinking of it, you know, in, in the context of sort of uh, the Indian, like Indian state occupation in which um, Kashmir, you know, in 1990 is declared officially, mm-hmm. like legally and militarily declared a disturbed area. And mm-hmm. along with a number of emergency laws that are instituted, right, is basically put under martial law, uh, where it kind of remains until today, right? So um, mm-hmm. these these laws, these kind of anti-disturbance laws, if you like, uh, which are meant to be temporary, become part of a kind of permanent Infrastructure, um, this permanent kind of emergency infrastructure um, in Kashmir. And um, what I found uh, that was interesting about disturbance was that people were, of course, using it to talk about all kinds of extrajudicial violence that had happened, right? That these emergency laws, for example, give cover to security forces to shoot on site, right? To do preventative detentions, to do all kinds of really aggressive military occupation uh, operations, and they are protected right from from prosecution, um, even when these kind of egregious human rights violations occur, which we know they have uh, occurred sy- systematically um, in the region. And so, people were using kind of questioning, of course, what is this technology of disturbance, and what was it doing? Uh, but what I realized was kind of interesting was that the sense of impunity that had come about as a result of disturbance. Mm -hmm. It was no longer just the state that was acting with impunity, or it was no longer just the military or soldiers, but people were kind of theorizing the way that disturbance had like sort of infiltrated the social. Mm -hmm. Um, It had kind of unleashed this ethical havoc, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in everyday life where everyone was behaving as if they had impunity, right? So there was a sense of kind of widespread, um, corruption, uh, these senses of like interpersonal mistrust, um, right. All of which kind of permeated into the clinic and into medicine as well. Um, where doctors were extremely scared of patients. Um, like I think that there's a moment in the book where I describe how, um, Doctors were describing patients as basically have like that they had taken on the spirit of rebelliousness that had come, you know, with with occupation and with the kind of overturning of like the social world essentially, uh, where patients could, you know, if they didn't, if a procedure, for example, didn't go well, patients would attack doctors, right? Or their kin would attack doctors. Um, So doctors were feeling this kind of intense sense of vulnerability. At the same time, patients were also feeling this intense sense of vulnerability, like how do we trust doctors? How do we know that are they giving us medicine or are they giving us poison? Um, okay. There were all of these cases of like malpractice um, and people were attributing all of these forms of disorder or disturbance to this kind of larger political um, disturbance. You know, So mm-hmm. I think it was really... Um, you know, I think it was important to sort of think about disturbance as something that was very much like embedded in the ordinary. It wasn't something that was just particular to these kind of exceptional, like legal mechanisms. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like Lauren Berlant has this, I think, very useful distinction between trauma as an event and, you know, Mm -hmm. what she calls ordinary disturbances, things that like spread throughout the life world In everyday practices, like embodiment, you know, in dreams, um, in social relations. And so she, you know, she says she kind of calls on trauma theorists to like think about not just specific events, but also atmospheres Mm -hmm. and environments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is really what people were trying to say, both through the idea of Kamsori as well as the idea of disturbance, that this is sort of, it's like infused, you know, into our everyday
0: lives yeah it's in the air in exactly a way, right? in exactly yeah. yeah yeah um uh in in uh what i really also was um struck by is uh what you say in chapter four mm-hmm. about um uh ngos the role of ngos providing psychosocial care in sites of trauma such as kashmir and as we were as you were talking about Trauma being sort of generalized and uh, not looking at trauma as an event, um, I was curious to hear uh, more about the role of NGOs in providing psychosocial care, right? Again, in chapter four, you uh, don't tell us a story about how humanitarian organizations fail to achieve objectives or callously, or a story about how they callously exclude populations through arbitrary determinations of worthiness. Instead, you argue that it is the relational epistemological and methodological challenges of doing and evaluating psychosocial work. Uh, But I also thought that I guess it's a methodological challenge of also determining what is trauma and how to deal with it. Right. Um, And yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the motivations of these NGOs uh, and how they shaped uh, and how these motivations shape the categorizations of people as patients. And uh, it would be great if you could perhaps share one instance of uh, when these Um, medical categories were subverted, uh, pointing to their innate fragility Mm -hmm. in sites of uh, generalized trauma, so to speak.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, your question is like, so uh, (laughs) it's really on point. Um, Before, I guess I want to add like a little bit of background to it, if I can, just in terms of, um, you know, one of the things you sort of asked was also thinking about humanitarianism as well, right, mm-hmm. through this question. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I think like so much work in um, in anthropology, right, on humanitarianism um, has focused on the kind of the ways in which humanitarian interventions are these processes of like radical subjective transformation, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about... Um, like were coming out of Haiti or um, just conditions of like, let's say asylum seekers or refugees who have to rely on these humanitarian apparatuses in order to, to receive recognition. Often they, they are transformed, right. It from being like political actors um, into, you know, what, what anthropologists will call victims, right? Or they have to learn how to tell their stories in particular ways. They have to really like dilute their identities. Um, and I wanted to sort of, well, it's not so much I wanted to push against that, but I realized that my material didn't fit that um, right. that story, you know. Um, and that was because both, I think, psychosocial care in particular is such a different kind of humanitarian care than, let's say. Offering like residency to somebody, right, or offering asylum to somebody, um, it was such an inadequate, such a piecemeal form of care to begin with that mm. I think, in a way, it allowed people to resist and push back uh, against it in a lot of ways. Where you know, I think if someone is offering you residency, you know, in a country like you're not gonna, it, it shrinks right your capacity yeah, yeah. to be an agent in that space. But here, since Anyway, it was like hardly, you know, it was hardly anything. It was counseling or it was like receiving some emergency kit. Um, mm. People were, these encounters were much more fraught um, mm. and much more surprising. Um, and so I realized I had to kind of theorize what was happening in them in a in a kind of different way than what some of the other literature on humanitarianism uh, was, you know, had kind of led us to believe that these are these like, you know, totalizing, processes um, of transformation so um, what I found interesting I mean so you know these psychosocial organizations I really feel for them (laughs) at the same I mean I have a very ambivalent relationship to them on the one hand um, I think a lot of them are trying to do like really difficult work right they're trying to like fill in the gaps of a public health system that is completely overwhelmed, really under-resourced where psychiatrists mm-hmm. don't have time to have these in-depth conversations uh, with patients. Um, and so here you have these organizations that are trying to like provide a kind of meaningful interaction, whether they're really kind of developing like ethical listening skills and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, I feel like they're, they're doing some really, really important work. Um, where I think some though not all um, of the organizations kind of you know struggled or fell short Mm -hmm. was in their um, in their sort of effort to um, transform you know what they thought was like the (laughs) the psychic life of of people in Kashmir, right where they thought like people have zero understanding of mental health care and so Mm -hmm. we have to we're entering this like Blank slate, you know, and we mm-hmm. have to like create, we have to educate people into what de- depression is and what, mm-hmm. um, you know, what counseling is and those kinds of things. Um, not recognizing, of course, that people have all kinds of coping mechanisms and have for a long time um, mm-hmm. and that it's just in a different language, right? It's a different idiom. Yeah. Um, so that was always a little bit frustrating. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I you know I found the encounters between patients and uh, these NGOs so fascinating because like Mm -hmm. I said they were always full of negotiations so you know like a typical counseling encounter like session I would sit into you know the counselor Mm -hmm. would spend like 20 minutes just explaining what counseling is to a person you know Mm -hmm. and then the, the, the you know the patient would listen blah 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 and then they would have their Exchange and then at the end the patient would say, "Okay, great. Can I have my medicine?" <laughs> you know? Yeah, counselors would be like, "No, you know, this is yeah. not what it's about." Um, and it was just this dance, kind of over and over again. Um, and so it was just interesting to kind of think about the the illegibility of this particular form of care. Yeah. Um, and that actually receiving kind of biomedical care like you know pills etc was way more culturally sort of legible to people um, mm-hmm. than sitting and like talking to a stranger for an hour um, so there were all these kind of really interesting dynamics you know at work yeah. in these in these organizations
0: yeah um, that's i remember being very uh, struck by uh, what you said in the chapter about how organizations were selling a sort of like a worldview of an inner transformation of the Kashmiri mindset, uh, so to speak. And yeah, it was, uh, it it was very interesting um, that you, you, that you did, you know, paid attention to that too. And um, it's something that I guess, ethnography offers in a way, right. Uh, That other forms of gathering information about what's going on in these spaces that it would just completely miss this, uh, this sort of, subtle messaging that's going on there.
1: Exactly. Um, and I think what yeah. was comical was it's, it's sort of failure to actually right. use that um, <laughs> right. transformation in a lot of cases, you know, uh, but just because I think had they been offering something really, you know, imp- something that people really wanted, I think people would have played along with the script, uh, yeah. but because it was, the, you know, there wasn't really any, um, yeah, the gift wasn't that appealing. <laughs> yeah. You know, the effort at subjective transformation, I think really, they really struggled at
0: that. Mm. Mm. That's very interesting. I'm going to be thinking about this uh, for a while. <laughs> I attended a lot of counseling sessions of a very different kind in my field work oh, where, yeah. uh, where uh, traffic policemen were trying to counsel drivers without licenses or drivers that had been drinking and driving into becoming better drivers. And it was something uh, where it's a very different context, but like the, the narrative around counseling, I think was always like, just tell us what to do. You know, (laughs) I'll I'll pay the fine. I don't want to sit here and listen, Um, which, yeah, which is uh, interesting in its parallels, I guess. (laughs) Uh, So in the final chapter of the book, yeah, you do, I think um, in a way, explore, two events, right? Um, You explore the 2014 flood in Kashmir, uh, the worst, well, in quotes, natural disaster to have hit the region in over 50 years. And you uh, track the Indian state's response to it and how this response was covered in popular mainstream media in India. Um, In a sense, we go back to what the book started out with, Mm -hmm. broadly speaking, uh, this desire for a rosy imaginary of civilians and military uh, Cooperating with each other and trusting each other, and you argue that the most acceptable form of Indian Kashmiri relationality is the latter's complete deference. That militarized care is not altruistic, but actually very deeply conditional. And then you pivot to the second event, which is which was in 2016 when Burhan a young uh, Kashmiri militant leader, was assassinated by the Indian security forces, and. Uh, It also coincided, I guess, with your own visit to the region, right? Like after dissertation research had been done and so on. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about how these two crises, the floods in 2014 and the assassination in 2016 are related and how hospitality and humanitarian care factored into making life possible in Kashmir in the aftermath of these two crises? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So as I um, I described in the book how basically I um, returned to Kashmir in 2016, uh, which was you know after a gap of a few years I hadn't I wasn't there during the floods um, mm-hmm. and you know I had landed I was in Delhi and um, already the kind of mass uprising after Burhan Wani, who was this young uh, Kashmiri militant, was killed by mm-hmm. Indian security forces in the summer of 2016. Um, you know, there were already mass uprisings. The whole region was already sort of under curfew and lockdown, etc. Um, but, you know, because I was in Delhi and because I'm a stubborn person, <laughs> I was like, no, I don't care. I'm going. I have to go. Um, and so I, I went and, of course, immediately... And even my friends in Kashmir had said, like, "Don't come, you know. It's mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to do anything. Don't come." But I felt, yeah, like this pull, you know, mm-hmm. and this responsibility or, or whatever it was um, mm-hmm. that I wanted to go. And so I went, and of course, immediately all my fieldwork plans turned to dust. You know, it was right. impossible to do anything because it was at that time. The severe, the most severe lockdown I had ever experienced. And I had, mm-hmm. you know, been there through 2010 and other periods of protest as well. But um, it really felt like something, the earth had kind of shifted. Um, and, you know, now, of course, looking at it retrospectively, it's, it seems almost quaint, right? When we think about mm-hmm. what's happened in the last year or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what this, um, I mean, what this moment did of 2016 was, again, because it was in lockdown, um, you know, it was, again, this space of disturbance. Um, What it did was it really allowed people to um, open up and tell stories. Um, And I think that's one of the things about disturbance as well. Just coming back to your earlier Mm -hmm. question, too, was, you know, that it's... um, Often we think about disturbance as these like very spectacular incidents of violence and like bombs and, you know, things like that. But a lot of times the disturbance was more like this kind of quietening down or kind of like emptying Mm -hmm. of the everyday. You have like nothing to do. You have nowhere to go. You have, you know, no one to talk to. Um, You're just hanging out, just kind of waiting. Right. You're Mm -hmm. in this like space of liminality. Um, and that's actually really good for ethnography in many ways um, yeah, right. people like are more than happy to tell stories um, mm-hmm. during those times and what I found really interesting was that people began telling me a lot of stories about the floods in 2016 um, mm-hmm. and so they themselves were kind of making a connection between what was happening in 2016 which for them was you know this such a clear sort of sign of the Indian states. Um, it's, it's hypocrisy. It's, um, it's like, right, this complete disjuncture between its claims of, of care and love and then on the other hand, using pellets, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Using pellets on civilians and which people in Kashmir like repeatedly said were, these are like to be used on animals. You know, mm-hmm. so this mm-hmm. kind of like claim that, oh, we are like uh, using these more sophisticated and softer forms of militarism. And then on the other hand, you have like, you know, by the end of the 2016 protest, 15,000 people are have been like injured uh, with these mm-hmm. with these non-lethal weapons. So that, that sort of disjuncture was sh- so sharp. And I think that's what people sort of uh, were relating to when they were talking about 2014, because that was another moment in which there was this really sharp disjuncture between representation and reality. Right. So after Mm -hmm. the 2016 floods, like the Indian media, the right, everything was kind of like, pardon the pun, but like flooded with images of, you know, rescue Mm -hmm. and relief and these helicopters and soldiers like bravely crossing these rivers and, you know, Mm -hmm. rescuing people and all this stuff. And, um, People told me, you know, that that was actually not at all what happened, that the army like rescued its own camps, rescued tourists, Mm -hmm. and then rescued some of its informers, collaborators, and then um, everyone else was left abandoned. Mm -hmm. Um, And so both of these moments, just two years apart, were, I think, these really moments in which like this idea of abandonment really crystallized. Um, Mm -hmm. At the same time as they were seeing the the way the state was kind of making these claims of care and attention and all of that, right? Yeah. Um, And uh, of course, like, uh, abandonment was not the, like, that was not the final kind of result on the ground. People Mm -hmm. fought back against it in all kinds of ways. Um, And this is where, you know, hospitality and um, kind of mutual aid you know, what I think we're seeing now as well in the U.S., this like burgeoning kind of mutual aid um, movements really came up. Um, so in 2014, you know, neighborhoods self-organized, mosques organized food, water, all of these like basic necessities. Young boys went house to house, checking up on people, delivering food. Um, mm-hmm. And the same thing happened in 2016. People, people organized, they supplemented the public health Um, system which was again totally overwhelmed by these like you know just injured protesters coming like waves after waves of injured people coming Um, they set up tents outside the hospital taking care of like families taking care of patients Um, Mm -hmm. and people kind of connected both of these events through this language of of hospitality or mehman nawazi and mm-hmm. just saying like, look, we know how to take care of each other. You know, we don't actually need this uh, this Indian state to right. create this like force dependency. We're actually perfectly capable of creating these forms of in- infrastructure um, for ourselves. And that was a, just a really powerful um, example for me of how mm-hmm. these practices of self-determination, it wasn't just a political horizon. But it was like something that was happening in the present. You know, people were act- actively doing it and actively sort of showing each other, look, we can be interdependent. We can kind of determine our own fates, right? Our own lives, we can take care of each other. Um, mm-hmm. So it was just a, a way of sort of pushing back against, you know, this idea that we need the state to, to care for us more. That wasn't really mm-hmm. the narrative. It was like, actually... Leave us alone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we can do this. Um, yeah. We're going to show you just how beautifully we can do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, I could see that even in the writing, uh, the voice of the people who were saying this, right, that came through really clearly and very strongly. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Uh, well, what I really loved about the book was also your um, reflexive and candid writing about your fieldwork. And you've already shared um, a little bit about how you got into it, the various ethnographic serendipities and surprises that uh, guided you along. But I was hoping um, if uh, that you would be able to share with our listeners the sort of embodied adjustments you made while doing fieldwork in a militarized context as a non-native anthropologist, right? And I'm thinking specifically of a moment in your fieldwork during a time of heightened sieges and curfews where uh, you asked of yourself, Uh, was I becoming Kamzor too? And uh, I thought that was like such a, I mean, I remember marking it over and over again. Um, And I guess in the context of our conversations until now, I'm uh, curious about the learning curve um, in a setting where, uh, as you yourself candidly put forth in the book, the very point of writing a dissertation sometimes seems futile.
1: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think... um... You know, uh, this is sort of like what I was um, gesturing to earlier as well um, in terms of, you know, not really being able to grapple with what the effects of doing this work were on myself mm-hmm. while I was going through it. I think I was performing the role of the ethnographer Um And feeling like yes, I have mastery over this material, and of course, I can objectively describe these processes that are going. Not that I believe in objectively, but you know that I could be somehow standing outside of them, and I could you know describe them in a reflexive way, but still you know still be able to kind of comment on them as something external um, Mm -hmm. to myself as well as ethnography. And um, I think by the time I started writing the book, I was finally ready to acknowledge some of the ways in which um, militarism and violence had seeped into me, you know, Mm -hmm. and had seeped Mm -hmm. into my field work. There were all of these silences. There were all of these gaps in my field notes, um, Mm -hmm. things that I was really ashamed of, Um, you know? So for example, at the beginning of my field work, you know, I would really like resist, this idea of, um, you know, there would be there would be a curfew or something, but it wouldn't be such a strict curfew. And so mm-hmm. I would have this like kind of sense of bravado, and I'd be like, "Of course, I'm going to go to the clinic. You mm-hmm. know, I'm going to make use of this day, and I'm going to, I'm still going to be productive, um, even though everyone else is telling me to stay at home and everyone else is perfectly okay staying home." Um, yeah. And I would really push against that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, And I realized that that was partly like an inability to truly contend with, again, how like violence had sort of eroded people's capacities um, Mm -hmm. over time. Um, And the deeper I kind of got into the fieldwork, the more I I became, you know, I I sort Mm -hmm. of um, became immersed, or that that militarism kind of became a part of of what I was doing. It became inescapable. Um, in a sense of the, you know, the moment that you talk about of was I becoming Kamzor too was a, you know, was the kind of the moment, I think in 2010, when you um, know, there were like three months of nonstop protests over the summer, where at some point, I just decided I wasn't going to fight against it anymore. And yeah. I was just going to succumb. I was just going to yeah. succumb to the temporality of disturbance of slowing down, of not really, um, doing field work, quote unquote, just like staying in my room, you know, letting, letting myself really feel the effects of the curfew on my body, um, Mm -hmm. feeling claustrophobic, um, you know, all of, all of those sensations. Uh, I really like let myself kind of go through that. And Mm -hmm. I think that was so important. Um, Later on, I realized that this was, you know, of course, I had been, like, drawing a lot on, like, feminist ethnography and stuff, my whole, you know, my, my whole graduate career and things like that. But, um, you know, later, much later, I read um, Jean-Fabre Sada's book on witchcraft. I don't know if you've read yeah. it, but um, it's really wonderful. And she has this concept called being caught, like being affected. Uh, because mm-hmm. she describes, like, going to field doing her field work in this small village and how no one was willing to talk to her about witchcraft um, mm-hmm. until she got with she got bewitched herself. And oh, then yeah. suddenly people were like, Okay, now you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See,
1: yeah, <laughs> now yeah. we can talk to you. Um and yeah. it was a very similar experience for me where I felt like, okay, now I'm caught in this. Mm-hmm. Now I am, you know, I, I'm like spinning in the way that other people are spinning um in Mm the situation um and I really wanted to capture that in the book part of it was my own effort to kind of like confront it and overcome it I think you know by Mm -hmm. thing uh, by writing about it but um I also know that a lot of anthropologists don't write about these things and they skip over these -hmm. experiences because it is right like you do feel like I've I feel Like, what am I doing reading a novel in my room? When right, right, <laughs> right. Making the most out of every day in the field, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's also like this weird quantitative hangover, right? Of like capturing uh, or, I don't know, like number of hours or minutes that you spend. I mean, there's a way in which even without... Explicitly saying that it's quantitative, there is like the number of months you spent, or there are these measures that we take for granted as uh, bestowing some kind of legitimacy on what you do. Because I guess the worry is the 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 other extreme, right, where like you just don't actually do any ethnography but <laughs> write an entire book on it. But yeah, I mean, I can. Um, I really appreciated uh, the can the the way you wrote. Uh, your place in the field for this reason because uh, I was, and especially some of the moments of doubt or uh, you know mistranslation of some kind of uh, conversation on, uh, uh, and the way you dealt with those moments uh, was it was really instructive I think even to teach with I found that uh, really helpful
1: thank uh, yeah I, I mean I yeah. do think it's that huge um, it's a huge kind of positivist hangover as well right? yeah, um, <laughs> yeah of just feeling like we have to present ourselves as authorities somehow in the face of this when, you know, actually we're so, um, yeah, our our whole being is kind of reshaped by these experiences.
0: Um, Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, in, in sociology, the discipline that I'm in I'm often asked how many hours I spent in the field, which I find very wow very funny. <laughs> I did not keep a log at all. I did not know that that was uh, necessary, but it was, it's like genuinely offered up as a as a question: uh, How many hours um, did you clock <sighs> oh in God. the field? Yeah, <laughs> so um, it's kind of why I really appreciated also the the writing because it says if there's less in anthrop- anthropology, there's even less. Of this in Soch, so yeah. Uh, But you know, as as a reader, I was also very taken by how you used poetry and uh, photographs and uh, in the book. And I think these helped uh, open up different possibilities of um, accessing the material in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted to get your thoughts on how you were able to use such a lyrical and poetic mode of writing ethnography, and whether it was a conscious choice to render your material legible in this sense
1: um yeah thanks for that question I mean it was definitely a conscious choice um you know I think like um I like I have to sort of remind myself that I am a writer first and foremost and Mm -hmm. actually that's the identity that I I sort of much prefer to just being an anthropologist just because of you know my ambivalence towards the discipline and it's It's history, you know, it's Mm -hmm. embeddedness with colonialism and ingenuation of those, even the colonial forms of knowledge, right, that it continues to um, perpetuate. Um, And, of course, like, you know, even being a writer, but being an anthropologist, like, there were all of these kind of brilliant, like, feminist ethnographers, right, in the 90s, um, who, I mean, I guess you know, for, for me, those are the people I sort of grew up with, quote unquote, right, in grad school mm-hmm. and for grad school, reading all of them who really challenge and push the boundaries of what ethnography can be. I mean, looking back on those texts, it's such a amazing kind of flourishing, right, of experimental form. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that like, when it came time for me to write a book that I, I wanted to To really hold on to the craft of writing in the book. And I really wanted to write a book that I would want to read. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that sounds like really simple, but um, you know, when you're like writing an academic book, there are all these voices that are telling you to like just like let go of it. Like, you know, don't, you don't need to think about the reader, just get it done. Um, That like writing a book is really just a way of getting tenure. You know, there's Mm -hmm. just so many. Pressures like that which I think yeah. dilute the craft uh, of writing and I really <laughs> wanted to resist that because it was so important for me I, I read a lot of fiction you know like I love poetry mm-hmm. these are these are like modes of expression that are just um, not just really important to me but I think they tap into other parts of like there are just other ways of knowing, right. And other ways mm-hmm. of sensing the world that I think are just so important for us. Um, so I really, I find it, you know, it's, I think it's sad that we don't, we don't think about writing like more seriously as a craft, even, um, in anthropology, even though it's a, a primary kind of way of communi- communicating, right. our uh, mm-hmm. ideas to the world. Like we don't really teach ethnographic writing, um, you know, I think uh, these are these are all really kind of sad uh, things that we need to, I think we really need yeah. to rethink these as part of the sort of crisis of the discipline as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just also, Snehaj, though you know, like, this book was rejected so many times by so many presses.
0: I just find that... It, like I just find that's so hard to believe. I mean, why would any press pass up on this? It makes no sense to me. <laughs> they did.
1: People told me uh, they hated the writing.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> they,
1: they hated the style. They hated the... I mean, they wanted it to be much more like, you know, theory, capital T. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think like there's a, still this kind of misrecognition, right? That ethnography yeah. is not theory. Um, right. That writing yeah. clearly is is easy, but actually mm-hmm. it's so difficult, you know. Yeah. Um, I really was very conscious of every decision of uh, what kind of theory do I want in the book, and what kind of theory do I want in the footnotes. Like you probably noticed that a lot of the yeah. theory is footnoted, and yeah. that's deliberate because I wanted to maintain the readability. I wanted to maintain like the sense of lyricism that. You know, I found in everyday life um, mm-hmm. in Kashmir, I didn't want academic knowledge to be the only kind of um, knowledge that was that was being presented. Um, so I sort of really, um, I really like deliberated over those those choices. And you know, I want people to know that you can, <laughs> you should yeah. think about all of those. Those are all conscious choices, right, that we make as writers and we can, I think those are ethical and also political decisions um, that we should consider, so.
0: Yeah, and moving away from, I guess, this uh, compulsiveness Mm -hmm. of uh, moving forward with one's career alone, but like, you know, also like doing something that you've spent so much time thinking about, like writing it up in a manner that that is satisfying to you is I think really, really important. I'm still very surprised that um, presses would reject Something like this, because honestly, it's, uh, yeah, it's. I guess it's fine to say this, but like, few books uh, are, I think, read cover to cover by me, and this was certainly one of uh, them. And I finished it so quickly, precisely because I was. It was every chapter was just so engaging, and I and I really couldn't put it down, which is, I think, very high praise for an academic book. So you know, uh, well, as they say, their loss. <laughs> but.
1: <laughs> No. Uh, yeah. Thanks yeah. for saying that. I mean, that means a that means a lot because you do have to um you have to trust your voice, you know, um yeah. which is not it's not easy in this business to do yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, so
0: I mean, that's that's I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are also writing and I'm sure struggling with writing, especially this year, will uh, will be really glad to hear that, and it's a it's a good reminder um and yeah I guess my final question to you I've taken a a lot of your time but I would really love to know what you're working on right now and what we can hope to see from you in the near future
1: sure um so I my you know my projects are sort of I guess like everyone else's in this kind of weird suspension you know state of suspension where um I'm working through some some material like from 2016 uh, around the pellet stuff, um, Mm -hmm. things like that. What I really want to work on next, you know, whenever I get to go to Kashmir next, which I hope is is soon, maybe next year, um, is to really like work on um, documenting kitchen gardens. Um, Mm -hmm. For women, like a lot of women have kitchen gardens. They grow like vegetables and, you know, things for the family, but also those become Really important during times of strike and and curfew, and they feed mm. neighborhoods. They, you know, feed like entire communities. Um, mm. And so, I really want to document just that kind of the practice of gardening and sort of, you know, not just um survival, right? These are not just survival practices, but they're actually like yeah. nourishing, nurturing mm. life. Yeah. Um, they're like ways that people are thriving in these. Yeah. Conditions, So that's what I'm hoping to do next. And even just thinking about it makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. <laughs> um, it feels so hopeful in this moment. And I mean, everyone's gardening now, I guess, in COVID time. <laughs> right,
0: that's true. Um, yeah.
1: So maybe we will learn some, you know, some really like cool new practices of gardening from that mm-hmm. project.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In a sense, it just, uh, I guess it's like, a very visible reminder of the potency of the soil, right? Like, and that's, that's such a beautiful image in that sense um, of things thriving, growing, mm-hmm. uh, being nourished, but also nourishing us um, in in very interesting ways. And that, yeah, the next project sounds really, really interesting. And I hope you get to go to Kashmir um, soon and uh, do this work. And yeah, uh, I Again don't want to take up more of your time but I really do want to thank you for taking time out and chatting with me today. I again loved your book and loved this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will will be uh, will be very thrilled.
1: I did as well Sneha. Thank you so much and thank you for all the really amazing questions. I
0: really awesome, loved chatting yeah. to you. Yeah, take care and you know stay safe as um, as they say nowadays. <laughs> yeah, you too. <laughs> Bye. Bye.